Well, welcome to the next edition, this edition of uh, Breakfast with Jesus. And uh, we're still covering uh, the journey in Jeremiah that Anne and I took. And uh, this particular topic is uh, a really important one. Um, it is a question, is hell, H-E-L-L, the worst mistranslation in the Bible. Uh, it's pretty obvious, I think, the answer is it's certainly a candidate, if not the winner. Because uh, the H-E-L-L word has hijacked the Christian mind and the image of the gospel that the Christians present to the world. If that's true, or even halfway true, it's been a devastating distortion of the gospel. And I'm not in this talk going to go into the question of uh, cosmic redemption or universal salvation. I'm just talking about a translation. So the first thing to say, obviously, is that the word H-E-L-L does not exist in the Bible. Every mildly educated student of the Bible knows this. Um, the word H-E-L-L uh, is actually used to translate four or five other words, uh, none of which are anything like the modern meaning of the word H-E-L-L. And they're also not like each other. And the question is, does this sloppiness matter or not? Well, yes and very much so. Uh, I'm going to answer this question not by looking at the Greek or Hebrew. You don't really need uh, to do that. Um, I'm going to explain it, I think, with something far more important uh, from another field of expertise, which is poetry and the power of connotation. And as I often say, uh, whilst I'm not a trained theologian, um, I am trained in literature. Originally, that's my core experience and training. Um, now, uh, we, wanna, we need to step back here in order to, to see what's going on and look at this critical question of how language shapes both our mind and cultures. And to do that, I want to uh, look at a important word uh, for this topic, which is connotation. Now, poetry is the study of how words work, not to define concrete, precise um, meaning, but how words work to generate ideas and feelings. Um, so it's not about so-called dictionary definitions, and, and dictionary definitions assume that words work like a label that we go around and we just stick on things and, and they're unambiguous. Poetry assumes that words generate, they work at a far deeper level, not all the time, well, but, and perhaps with varying degrees of depth, but nonetheless they work to generate much deeper undercurrents of uh, shadowy concepts that are often unconscious uh, to the person speaking. Not always, but often. So thus their power, the power of words, particularly imagery, is not to describe something, but to evoke feelings. 
And these feelings will take us uh, almost into a non-verbal space in our souls. And they go deep below, like the tip of an iceberg. You know, the word, some of these big words are like the tips of icebergs. And there's a huge uh, layer of associated connotations underneath it. Uh, any audience may only be half aware of these evoked feelings, but actually that makes them, if anything, more powerful, not less powerful. Uh, just a, a simple example. When the great 19th century Jesuit poet, Gerard Manley Hopkins, wrote, Oh, the mind, the mind has mountains. He's not being definitional. The mind does not have mountains, but he sets off waves of association, uh, like ripples, associations like fear, uh, fear of the unknown, um, scaling and effort, perhaps death and, and falling, and that, that just instantly reverberate in our thoughts. They take us a long way away from the comfortable rationality that we would normally associate with the word mind. Uh, and now what this is called in poetry is, is connotation. Its contrast is denotation. Uh, denotation means the type definition of a word. It assumes this definition is precise and unambiguous, but connotation makes no such assumption. It assumes a word's more like a stone thrown into a pond. It causes ripples. And these ripples are the chain reaction of associated meanings that the word initiates. So um, this is very powerful, uh, powerful to express thought. But then you can go further and add another layer of subtlety on the meaning of language, which is words work backwards. They don't just express ripples of thought. They then start to shape our thought. There is an interaction between words and what we think. Most people feel rather simplistically that it's a one-way street. I've got ideas in my mind and words are some kind of communication pipe through which I pour the meaning. Um, that's naive. Uh, the far more powerful um, conception of language is that it's interactive between mind and word and that words will start to influence, not just express thoughts. Now, that's, that's interesting because the person who most dramatically got that in 20th century literature was George Orwell in his great book, 1984. The whole, I mean, the real theme of 1984 is that Big Brother wanted to control the people. And if he wanted to control the people, how would he do it? And the answer was language. If he controlled the language of the people, he would control how they thought. So in a sinister way, what he wanted to do was he wanted to shrink the mind of the people. So they'd ask less questions, they'd be, be puppets, they'd be capable of manipulation. So he therefore shrunk the language. So for instance, he, he took the word good. He got rid of other synonyms like elegant, attractive, desirable, got rid of all of those and all they had was good plus good and double plus good. And over time, their minds shrank and they lost the rich layers of meaning and their minds were formed by good plus good and double plus good. We've had a modern example. We've had it right before our eyes with the, the sinister use of language by Putin in the invasion of Ukraine. 
we all know this is not a war, it's quote unquote a special military operation. He's absolutely fulfilling the prediction of Orwell, how a dictator will use words to try to control the mind of the people. So words shape whole cultures. I can remember as a young consultant being told, as a result of that, change is a language game. And I think that's very, very true. So there are big words, iconic symbol words that can, they become freight trains carrying uh, a load of hidden meanings. Now, in my view, this is what has happened to this very unfortunate choice of the word H-E-L-L to translate five other words in the Greek and Hebrew. Uh, those words you probably know already are Sheol, Hades, Gehenna, and or the Valley of Hinnom, they're synonyms, and just once the strange Greek word Tartarus. Whatever those words meant originally has now been absolutely obliterated by the steamroller of one word, H-E-L-L, with its fearsome connotations, and now it dominates our conceptual landscape like a tyrant. Um, to understand its tyranny, the tyranny of the word H-E-L-L, uh, we need to realise it's usually paired with the word heaven. So heaven and hell, they come like a couplet. Um, and this couplet is housed within a shared mental landscape, which frankly is much more platonic. It's even more pagan than it is Christian. I'm not going to go into that platonic landscape at the moment. Suffice it to say that this couplet, heaven, hell, um, assumes a destination for individual souls along a journey from death into the afterlife. And the journey happens against a backdrop of existence that includes mortality and immortality and gives a uh, landscape of life after death. This landscape of life after death it's haunted the human imagination from time immemorial. And the word hell, H-E-L-L, -L, sits within this haunted landscape. It doesn't transform that landscape, which is what I would argue the gospel does. I would argue you need zero revelation from the Holy Spirit to grasp the meaning of H-E-L-L. -L. It's in the common mind. It's in the pagan common mind. There's nothing revel re revelatory about it. And this mental landscape of the couplet, um, what it offers and forces on our thinking is an either or crossroads onto the path of every human soul. We have one of two destinies available to us, heaven or hell. Uh, the other point about H-E-L-L is I think it's a, it's a, it's a, a catch-all for anxieties and fears that are existential and deep. Um, I watched a program recently on the uh, ABC in Australia on a, a big charismatic church, Hillsong. It was sort of a critique of it, but they talked about the numbers of people who now not just left Hillsong, but left the Christian faith. And there are more than them than you'd like to think. But numbers of them, what they talked about, even after leaving, was being haunted by the fear of hell and no amount of the fact that they sat in and called themselves Christians for years in the Hillsong world got that fear out of them. So the question is, um, H-E-L-L, -L, 
Uh, what's its history? Where did it come from? If it's not in the Bible, where did it come from? Well, the answer is, um, I mean, the, the broad lines of the answer are clear enough, but the details are pretty shadowy. Uh, we know that the Latin Vulgate was the major translation of the Bible in the medieval era. Uh, it used the word infernum, won't go there, but that's another bad, <laughs> a bad translation of the Greek and Hebrew words we've got available, but that's what it used. But the first appearance of H-E-L-L uh, famously comes in a uh, around about 720 AD in a book called the Vespasian Psalter. Uh, this is the first appearance of the Bible in Anglo-Saxon. It's only the Psalms or some of the Psalms. And it's a verse, I can't tell you at the moment exactly which verse it is, but it, it gets it completely wrong because it's a she, the, the word in Hebrew is sheol and it translates that as hell. So where did that H-E-L-L come from? Um, well, uh, we know if you look at the Oxford English Dictionary that it's Germanic in origin. Um, so it comes from Northern Europe. Uh, you know, think, you know, the dark clouds of Game of Thrones or something like that, you know, a, a, um, clouded landscape. Um, possibly Norse god of the underworld. That's a likely candidate. The point is, it's a pagan word. It's a pagan word. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Gods of the underworld with their associated mythologies of fear and oppression. And that word has been like a freight train bringing the pagan fears of the afterlife into Christianity. Well, um, the Bible's words, the Bible's words. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, they are fivefold. Um, uh, the most important and common one for our purposes is Gehenna or the Valley of Hinnom. David Bentley Hart gives a very good explanation of the differences between them. I mean, one's just the Hebrew and the other's the Aramaic of the Hebrews. So, um, Gehenna or the Valley of Hinnom or the Vale of Hinnom um, are the, uh, they're just alternatives. Uh, Hades, which is the Greek word uh, for the Greek concept of the afterlife and Sheol, which is the Hebrew concept of the afterlife and Tartarus, which is just used once. Um, I'll give a link to this talk later on. Robin Parry gave a very good um, explanation of these words. Uh, now, the word, um, I'll also attach a table to this, which is the, the mentions by, in the New Testament of these words. The majority uh, is Gehenna, which is 11 or 12 times, Gehenna or Vale of Hinnom, and usually by Jesus, all by Jesus. One exception is it's in James, you know, the tongue set on fire of hell um, should be, uh, the tongue set aflame by Hinnom's veil. Now, mostly the NIV um, translates them as hell. Um, the English Standard Version translates Hades generally as Hades, but sometimes it goes back to hell. 
Um, the only, I mean, the only decent translation from the older world is Young's literal translation, which just used, does exactly what Bentley Hart has done. But Bentley Hart and Tom, and Tom Wright all translate Hades and Gehenna as either Hades and Gehenna, or uh, David Bentley Hart does says the va- the Vale of Hinnom. In other words, um, let's just you know take an example of. Um, uh, what Jesus says, you know, that uh, about having two eyes and being cast into hellfire, well, it should be cast into Hinnom's veil of fire. Um, uh, you know, you'll make, you'll make them more the child of hell than yourselves. Well, it should be you'll make them more a child of Hinnom's veil than yourself. Uh, can you escape the damnation of hell, Matthew 23? Well, David Bentley Hart, how may you escape the verdict of Hinnom's veil? That's what it should be. Um, so let's have a look at the pretty obvious question. What does this, what's this valley of Hinnom? What's it mean? Where's it come from? Now we go to Jeremiah. The most, I think, sustained examples are in Jeremiah. There are two of them, but they're part of sustained passages. Uh, one's Jeremiah 7 and one's Jeremiah 19. Now, um, if, if, I mean, my obviously recommendation is let's ban H-E-L-L and wherever it is, just translate it the Vale of Hinnom or Gehenna. If we did that, if you came across the Vale of Hinnom, most people would say, what on earth does that mean? And that's exactly what you want people to say. What on earth does that mean? We're not sure. We're not sure. What we know about, if we go into Jeremiah and it's mentioned in Kings, is it's a literal place. It's a deep ravine, you know, just out of Jerusalem, um, where, uh, um, you know, it, it appears possibly child sacrifices took place. Um, but it's a place where Jeremiah said they would burn the bodies. So Jeremiah... Um, Specifically, Jeremiah 7 and 19 are prophecies of the Babylonian judgment, which would climax in 586 BC. So if you're going to get any kind of chance of re-understanding this veil of slaughter thing, um, veil of Hinnom, you've got to go back and not just read these simple extracts, but get into the whole book of Jeremiah. And what, what was the circumstance? What was the situation because if we're going to be precise about the meaning Jesus might have had from it, surely an obvious thing to do would be to marinate our mind in the world of Jeremiah and see that he is using connotation suggestions from that world. Well, I mean, in Jeremiah 7, um, uh, you know, the Lord declares the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight. They have set they're detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. And they've built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. So there's apparently an allusion there to in the valley of Hinnom, child sacrifice having uh, perhaps taken place. And this will be going back to the reign of Manasseh. Right? <coughs> Therefore, behold, the days are coming. 
declares the Lord, when it will no more be called Topheth or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter, which Jesus doesn't use. He used the valley of son of Hinnom. For they will bury in Topheth because there is no room elsewhere. So there you got this idea that there was an original sin under Manasseh of possibly child sacrifice, adulterous practices, as a result of which the prophet is saying there's going to be coming a day when there'll be so many bodies thrown into that place. It'll be called the Valley of Slaughter. It won't even be called the Valley of Hinnom anymore. And he's talking very specifically about something that happened, has happened historically when the Babylonians routed Jerusalem. Um, and the dead bodies of the people will be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and none will frighten them away. Now, you know, this is not <laughs> a prediction of hell or destruction. It's a prediction of a savage obliteration uh, militarily of Israel that, that happened when the Babylonians um, defeated them in 586. Uh, the, the other one is Jeremiah 19, where something similar it, it goes on. Um, you know, similar long passage. Uh, I, I, I won't read it out, but it's something you know, saying much the same thing. Now, it does help. It does help um, that to get your mind into the subtlety of Jeremiah's situation. Um, Simplistically, I used to think that Jeremiah was, you know, the prophecies were against uh, idolatrous rivals <laughs> um, of, uh, the, of the Jewish religion. Not the case at all. Uh, Jeremiah's opponents were, at face value, uh, God-fearing prophets. You just read the book of Jeremiah. There's contests between them. What was actually going on was far more subtle than idolatry versus Judaism. What was happening was that um, Jeremiah was prophesying in, in, in the last gasp of the Jewish religion, which was the reign of Zedekiah. Now, he's a really interesting character to read about. Clearly, Zedekiah was really scared of Jeremiah. Clearly, Jeremiah was some kind of aristocrat um, and because he had access to Zedekiah who kept throwing him in prison. Um, but Zedekiah had a whole list. I mean, Zedekiah had stupidly rebelled against Babylon. He was, you know, he'd poked the bear. And um, now he, he therefore had cohorts of, you know, prophets who said, no, no, no. Uh, they were optimists. God's on our side. We're the Lord's people. He's going to defeat the Babylonians. At face value, you'd think, well, surely uh, they, these are the religious people. These are the people who are saying the right thing. They were the ones whom Jeremiah was saying, no, they're wrong. They were Jeremiah's opponents. Jeremiah was, as it were, the pessimist um, to what probably could well have sounded like a very valid um, religious claim to faith in God and God's protection. He was saying God isn't going to protect you. So it's far more subtle. Um, uh, his message of criticism was, was really multi-layered. At, at the one hand, he was saying Babylon's going to win. So one of the criticisms of Jeremiah, clearly by his opponents, was you're a traitor. You're, you, you know, you're, you're giving up. You're on the side of the Babylonians. Um, 
So that, that was how he was typified. Um, but equally, he had another layer of prophecy as well, saying, well, Babylon also is going to get judged in the end, and God will judge them. But what Babylon, what Jeremiah was really saying in these two passages is the utterness of the defeat that's coming. This won't be like any other one. This won't be like any other one, you know. You know, everyone, lots of Jewish kings had lost battles and come back from them. This was not going to be like that. There was going to be no way back. He was predicting exile, obliteration. And that siege is uh, referred to in Jeremiah 32, um, uh, which was the, the, you know, the final devastation. I think it was a terrible siege. It might have lasted 18 months. I'm not sure. Quite a time. So why, why go through all this? Well, you know, Read the Bible properly. Uh, <laughs> when Jesus talks about the Valley of Hinnom, he's making himself into a Jeremiah, <laughs> clearly. And at least do the work to get your mind into that referential field of Jeremiah's world from which Jesus is plucking this phrase, the Valley of Hinnom. It's obvious that he's absolutely positioning himself in a Jeremiah-type situation. We're a long, long way from H-E-L-L. I think you can see that. So what, what's my so what out of all this? Well, let's ban H-E-L-L. Um, uh, fix the translations. But further than that, um, I, I have heard a well-known preacher, I won't mention his name because he's too well-known, prefacing a series on hell and uh, Matthew along the lines of this. Hell, it, it's Jesus who talks about hell. And, and, and these are people who are um, defending the traditional view of hell. It's Jesus who talks about hell. So we really need to take it seriously because it's Jesus who talks about hell. Well, hang on. The corollary of that is no one else does. It's true. It's not in, Paul never mentions it. John never, it's, it's not in the epistles. And secondly, no, no, wrong. Sorry, sorry. Jesus doesn't mention H-E-L-L. He mentions the veil of Hinnom. That's what he says. So rather than saying only Jesus mentions, oh, 11 out of 12, H-E-L-L, only Jesus mentions hell, what you should say is only Jesus mentions the valley of Hinnom in the Bible. That's true. And people would say, yeah, and what's that mean? Because you would have, what you would have done in saying that is you would have cauterized the freight train of pagan associations that the word H-E-L-L brings and instead told people, go look in Jeremiah. It would immediately strike you as strange because there's no reference for it, you know. You've got to do work like Anne and I did to kind of get into the world of Jeremiah to have half a chance of getting at it. Um, but if Jesus, you know, the is positioning himself like Jeremiah, well, starts to make a lot of sense, you know. Um, his opponents, like Jeremiah's, were religious, not pagan. They were religious, the Pharisees of his day. Jeremiah had rival prophets, Jesus had rival prophets. Interesting to see how many of these mentions of the Valley of Hinnom are in the context of the Pharisees. Secondly, like Jeremiah, Jesus was pronouncing a time and space final judgment on the city of Jerusalem, being inevitable, despite reassurances you're getting. There's a lot of patriotism in Israel at the time of Jesus. And Jesus was 
sort of saying, sorry guys, it's all over. And there's a judgment coming that will be obliterating of the nation of Israel. A new exile is coming, which is what happened in 70 AD. Um, and his criticism of his opponents, like Jeremiah's criticism of his opponents, is, well, their obedience is ritualistic, not heartfelt. So, really, uh, this is a lament of a terrible distortion to our minds, the word H-E-L-L. I don't, I don't want to even say it anymore. H-E-L-L will do me. I mean, it, it is doing and has done to the common mind. Um, it's, it's as if we just need to look at this differently and, uh, and get this, oh, wow, we've just totally misread this whole deal. <laughs> look, I'll close with a story um, from a great film if you've never seen it. I'm sorry, yeah, this is a spoiler if you want to go and see the movie. The movie's called The Conversation, made by Francis Ford Coppola in the 1970s. Great movie. Uh, if you want to watch the movie, just go watch it. Um, if you don't want to watch the movie, here's the story. It's about a guy who um, is a strange fellow, but, but he, he is a surveillance expert, and he tape records conversations. And he gets this mysterious assignment from a client to tape record a conversation taking place with a young couple in a public space. So it's very hard to get the recording because it's, you know, there's a lot of background noise and so on. And he, he spends ages trying to hear what they're saying to each other. And uh, he sees this young couple talking and what eventually he deciphers is they say is, he'd kill us if he got the chance. That's what he thinks he's heard. And then his mind starts to run with this, for, with all of its suggestions. And now he, he reinterprets everything through that. And I won't go into the detail, but he starts to think, uh, and this, the, the woman, it turns out, is the wife um, of his client. So he's now thinking that his client is going to kill uh, his wife for adultery with this young man. That, so everything gets filtered through that understanding. And then eventually you just get this stunning scene uh, and he thinks he sees the wife murdered and you, you get this stunning scene where he sees the wife and she's uh, alive and triumphant. And so he gets a glimpse of her and he suddenly, and then he realises he's misheard. And... It was actually the wife who killed her husband, not the other way around. And what he heard was not he'd kill us if he got the chance, but he'd kill us if he got the chance. So let's not give him the chance. We'll kill him first. He'd kill us if he got the chance. It's, I might not be doing it justice, but just this simple sentence is looked at for most of the movie. We are looking at it through his eyes, getting it wrong, like he got it wrong, and seeing the wife is the victim, and then suddenly, at the end of the movie, in an instant, you see, I got this totally wrong. I just, it wasn't even he heard the wrong words. He got the wrong emphasis on the words. And the wife, instead of being the victim, is the villain. Great movie, and uh, I think we've done that with the word hell. Let's ban it.